For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think you probably know that the reason I like to read that each time is our topic is eternal life. It reminds us that it is a gift, freely given. Once given, it's ours. That's the way gifts work. And uh, by definition, eternal life is eternal. It can't die. It can't disappear. It can't fade away. It can't erode. And that is what the Bible supports. Um, I will say that I spent quite a bit of time. I spent uh, pretty much all of last Sunday afternoon and most of the day Monday and on into Monday evening doing research online. What did we do before Google, you know? Anyway, doing research online about what various denominations have to say, denominations that oppose eternal security, eternal life. They call it eternal security. I call it eternal life. And looking at how they support their mistaken opinions. Um, For various reasons, on various levels, the more I read, the more I searched, the more I looked, the more I thought about what was being said, the heavier hearted, the more sad I became. Uh, it's It's just a sad thing to watch people who are steeped in error. Uh, There was hostility, there was uh, a lot of arrogance, there was such a carelessness sometimes, and honestly, now I I don't lay this on all of them, but I think sometimes there was downright dishonesty in the handling of the scriptures in order to make their point, and it just left me feeling so very sad. But I wound up with a list of about 40 passages of scripture that were set out again and again in opposition to what we understand regarding the reality of eternal life. Uh, As I came to the end of my considerations and my preparations uh, up to that point, I, I thought about how we should respond. We who believe something that we are convinced by the Bible is true, how should we respond to opposition? How should we respond to error that opposes what we know that the Bible teaches? Uh, First of all, I'll say that I believe we should be like the believers at Berea. I'm going to read Acts 17.11. This is from the Old King James Version. It gives a more literal rendering than the New King James Version. Speaking about the believers at Berea, it says that these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word. It doesn't just say they received what the guys said. They received the word, the word of God. They received the word with all readiness of mind. They were prepared to accept what God said and searched the scriptures. I heard it. It made sense. I have some questions. Oh, well, I'll forget the questions. I like the guy. I trust the guy. I'm just going to believe him. No. They were more noble than that. They searched the scripture daily whether these things were so. Uh, those in Thessalonica, they were, they were opposed, and basically they had a riot in opposition to what Paul taught. Uh, but to dig in, for us, when, when we face something 
that's difficult perhaps to dig in, to search God's word for truth and understanding is noble. Uh, I think the New King James Version says fair-minded. That is not at all what it says in the Greek. It says they were noble. And in that old sense of this is a nobleman, somebody of high station, high rank, important place. So these were more noble. It's a mark of fitness for the high place to which God calls us. And uh, I think you understand that we are called to rule, to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a part of the invitation that is given. That place requires preparation. I'll ask you a question. If I ran for president, would you vote for me? (laughs) My brother's pastor, he went to be with the Lord, but somebody convinced him that maybe he ought to run for state senate or something like that. He said, Dean, would you vote for me? Dean said, I told him, no, Brother Guthrie, I wouldn't. <laughs> now, he didn't explain why. He just felt like Brother Guthrie was a pastor, and, and as a Christian, he needed to stay to his job. But one of the reasons you would not vote for me under any circumstances whatsoever is I do not have the background. I don't have the education practical or otherwise. I don't have the experience. I don't have whatever it would take to be an effective president of the United States. A high position requires preparation. Is that right? And so these were more noble than those at Thessalonica. How how do we know they were more noble? How do we know they were more fitted for a high place? Because they searched the scripture to find out, to be sure for themselves Not just, I believe this guy, but to be sure for themselves what the word of God has to say, what is really true. God doesn't intend for us to believe what we've been taught merely because it's what we've been taught. That was my position when the Lord got hold of my heart in 1969. I believed what I'd been taught because it's what I'd been taught, but when I was challenged, there was no way I could back up what I had been taught. Uh, We're accountable to the Lord. And, and he requires us really not just to have confidence in godly pastors and teachers and leave it at that. I believe we should have a measure of confidence. Once we know somebody, once we know their character, their commitment, the genuineness of their testimony, their commitment to the word of God and to setting forth the truth, we are to have that kind of confidence. But we're accountable also for our own willingness Well, to do that, but also to seek out and confirm the truth for ourselves. And I hope maybe you have some trust that when I speak the word, I do everything in my power to make it right. I trust that you feel the same about our pastor and about others that are called on to minister from this place. But that's spiritual nobility. To search the scriptures, to come to God yourself, to inquire of him, to settle it fully in your own heart, to let him do that work in you, to set forth his truth as a pillar of your life. There's another important aspect to our personally seeking out and establishing ourselves or making ourselves sure regarding what is true. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24, it says, well, starting with verse 24 through 26, uh, it says, and the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. That's a starting point, by the way. Don't don't get in a fight over doctrine. 
don't do it. It, it begins actually before that. It says uh, foolish and unlearned questions or debates avoid. You know, you don't have to be ignorant of the word to really get into an ignorant argument, do you? I mean, it can come down to did so, did not. Well, I know you are, but what am I? You know, I mean, it can almost come to that level with Christians if they don't just let the word of God work in them. Must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. We have an enemy. And our enemy is not somebody who is bound up in false doctrine. Our enemy is not some human being whose religion has taught them amiss or who... We know who the enemy is. The enemy is Satan. So our job toward other people is to be gentle uh, to all, not, not just to those you want to, but to all. Able to teach. How can you be able to teach? Uh, once you learn 2 plus 2 is 4, you know arithmetic, right? Can you teach differential equations? No, it takes a lot more preparation to teach differential equations. So to be able to teach, you have to know the material. Patient, not, not going off, flying off the handle. In humility, correcting. Not, I know more than you. I'm going to tell in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If, per, if God, perhaps, this isn't about you persuading somebody and overwhelming them with logic. If God, perhaps, will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Who's, who's the enemy? Why are people ensnared in wickedness and false doctrine? In, escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And so, if we ourselves take the time to learn what the Bible says, then if opportunity arises, you can't kick the doors down. We call on God to open a door of utterance, an opportunity to speak. But when the opportunity arises, we can then share the truth. Also consider... Uh, Regarding teaching and humility, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who makes you differ from another? Whoops, I skipped that slide, didn't I? There we go. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, somebody gave it to you, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You know, we can have doctrinally, we can have the spoiled rich kid syndrome, Right? Daddy worked hard and made millions, and so I'm privileged and I'm, I, I deserve whatever. Uh, if we have been privileged to have been taught, we've been given a leg up. Now, I will say any heart that desires to know the full truth of God's will can have that truth. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God... And he, he doesn't rebuke, he doesn't embarrass, he gives that wisdom to those that ask. And so we, if, if we've been given a leg up, and I had that privilege to be raised in the home of a godly pastor who taught sound doctrine. I had the privilege of being exposed to a lot of other teachers who taught sound doctrine. And it's not, oh, look at me. 
is like to whom much is given, much will be required. So we're not better than other people. We may be better off. We may have had more privilege than others, but if we have something different, if we have something to say, humility is still the watchword. Because we didn't create this doctrine. We don't own this doctrine. It's not bound up in the circle of fellowship that we've experienced. It's not anything to do with any of those things. Um, We want to be gracious to those who may have been snared in false doctrine, knowing who the snarer is, and ready to offer correction to that error if it will be received. So again, backing up, I wound up with a list of scriptures that were set out against what I understand to be this very present and permanent reality of eternal life, eternal salvation, eternal righteousness, eternal redemption. These are all phrases used right there in the Bible. Eternal. I sorted those scriptures out into several categories, and I'll make those clear as I go along. For time's sake, uh, not only will I not cover all those 40 passages today, I won't cover all those 40 passages. In fact, I told Brother Greg beforehand, I said, I may have to stop in mid-thought. Um, I've, already, I've already diverged from my notes, and I have more notes than I can use this morning, so uh, I'm going to have to watch the clock. I forgot to set my phone. I'm not going to do it now. I hate for you to miss the music, but, you know, what can I say? Anyway, uh, one of the passages, I'm going to start with the matter of rewards and loss, because that's an area where there's a lot of confusion. The Bible is talking about rewards, and somebody who doesn't take the time to look at the context and compare Scripture with Scripture decides, oh, this is really talking about being saved or not being saved. Well, the Bible, again, talks about rewards and loss. And one of the passages I saw used uh, repeatedly was 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Now, this isn't saying that only one Christian is going to be an overcomer. It's an illustration. Every illustration, every picture intended to represent a spiritual truth is limited, incomplete. It's just saying that there's a race going on, and you don't, everybody doesn't get, the, well, you tried. That's great. You get a gold seal. You get a gold seal. You get a gold seal. No, only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. There's control exercised in all things, every aspect of life. Don't get the idea that there are aspects of your life that fall outside of what your Christian experience is meant to be. Uh, in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we, for an imperishable crown. crown. Uh, in that day, what they gave to the winners was a laurel leaf crown. It might be made out of gold, but it was still sort of made to look like laurel leaves. And they didn't get big prize fighter belts, and they didn't get uh, gold medals. They, they got a crown. And so Paul said, therefore, I run thus. 
Not with uncertainty. I, I, I don't know. Do, do I need to speed up? Do I need to slow down? Do I need to save my energy? Do I need to make a big push now? Or if it's cross country, should I turn left here? Or uh, Not with uncertainty. And then he compares it to a boxing match. Thus I fight. Not as one who beats the air. I can remember watching... I used to watch boxing quite a bit, and you'd watch a boxer slip a punch. You'd see somebody wind up, and they'd throw a punch, and the boxer would do this or this. Just slip the head to the right or the left, and that punch goes right at beating the air. He said, but I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now, that's from the New King James Version. The New King James Version was not the... Uh, Preferred source for the quote. Uh, verse 27 in the old King James Version goes like this. Lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Boy, that gives a whole different image, doesn't it? Or from the American Standard Version. Lest by any means after that I have preached to others, I myself should be rejected. Uh, the implication when this passage was cited, especially the word castaway. They, they liked that one. It, the implication was the passage shows God's people in danger of being utterly cast away, um, of being rejected for salvation. Now, bear in mind the plainly stated Bible fact that the gift, not the thing you strive for, not the thing you run for, not the thing you fight for. The gift of God is eternal life. And I'm not going to reteach those basic Bible facts about salvation not being by our own righteous works. So I'll accept that you know that much. And uh, just ask a few questions. How many of you have ever competed? Maybe football, maybe wrestling, maybe... Boxing, maybe chess club, maybe math club, maybe halo, maybe, you know, checkers, maybe, you know, riding horses, maybe what? How many of you have ever competed in any kind of an event? Even, even just a game? Pretty much everybody, right? All right. Uh, this one might be a little harder. How many of you have ever won anything? I'm, I'm pretty much going to, well, no, I used to win at Boggle. Some of you know what that game is. Uh, whether it was just the fact of winning, or a medal, or a ribbon, or something else, you, you worked, maybe you just working during the time of the game, I don't know, but you worked pretty hard to win. Is anyone here, you can feel free to raise your hand, are you at all confused about the difference between a gift, say a birthday present, a gift. You didn't earn it, you just happened to be born. Why don't they give the presents to the moms, for goodness sake? But anyway, how many of you are confused about the difference between a gift and something that you work hard at? Maybe think your way through, maybe prepare and train for, but you worked to win something. Are you, is anybody at all confused between winning something and receiving a gift? I didn't think so. When we see Paul comparing the believer's course as a Christian 
with striving for an athletic crown. Does anyone here imagine that the topic he's discussing is the gift of salvation? The gift of eternal life. And I hope not. I think most of you here are fairly familiar with God's ways. Uh, and and in finally, in, in what sort... Now, the Bible talks about those that will one day stand before the great white throne. If you're not aware of this, there is the judgment seat of Christ. And we're, I'm getting ahead of myself. But at the judgment seat of Christ, our works will be judged. That's one thing. At the great white throne, people will be judged. If you have accepted Christ, your judgment was met in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the penalty was absolutely paid. And so there's not going to come a time when you are standing before the great white throne in danger of what the Bible calls the second death. All right? How many athletic contexts or board games, or computer games, or whatever it might be. Do they kill the losers? No, they reward the winners. A loser just lost something, that's all. There is reward, and there is loss. And so, the Greek word translated become disqualified. Um, Lest having preached to others, I myself should become disqualified, or I should be a castaway, or I should be rejected. The Greek word means just failing to pass the test. Did you ever fail a test? Now, maybe you said, my parents are going to kill me. Did they? Well, no, apparently you're here, so you made it. Uh, Do a Google search on uh, various athletes or for the, I think they, didn't they disqualify a horse at the Kentucky Derby a couple of years ago for failing a drug test. And uh, uh, was it Lance Armstrong, the guy that had all kinds of prizes and awards and winnings, and they stripped him of every one of them because he failed the drug test. Now, no test is necessary for the gift of eternal life. Uh, Not approved, unfit. There's not a person that you have ever met who wasn't unfit to receive the grace of God. You don't deserve the grace of God. It's unmerited favor. There's not a person here that wasn't disapproved in his sight because of sin. That, when we're talking about salvation, that's another issue. But what about the athletic event? Well, again, do a Google search on various kinds of rule-breaking and ways that you can lose a race or lose a game. In 2 Timothy 2.5, it says, And also, if anyone competes in athletics... Skip that slide, didn't I? If anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Uh, you know, they throw penalty flags down... Uh, in in football, there are rules, and God has established a pattern for living. And if, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and our works are judged, if we have not competed according to the rules, as it were, in this Christian race, we will not be approved for the highest place. If we have been careless to search out the word of God, to establish our own hearts in the truth that God has revealed. 
Because it's not that important to us. Oh, I want to reign with Christ, but I'm not going to prepare. Uh-uh. <laughs> Just, you know, I'm busy. Yes, you are. But are you that busy? Not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And so the athletic context is, that's the context, the athletic picture, the, the striving for a reward. That's the symbolism. And so I think we can say, and I, I think everybody here would agree with me, I hope you do, it's Bible. The thing definitely not under discussion in 1 Corinthians 9 is the possibility of gaining or losing eternal life, of entering into condemnation or of being delivered from it, because that's not what Paul was talking about. And that's a part of why it was so sad to me when I read about people taking scriptures like this where if you read it, you look at the context and you can see what it's about, and yet it's trotted out in opposition to God's wonderful gift, to the peace that it brings, to the joy, the rest that it brings to know our safety in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then another verse, Colossians chapter 1, well, another passage, Three verses, Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh uh, through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. This isn't in my notes. And, well, one person said, you see, this passage shows that a child of God can be alienated from God. It shows that a child of God can be an so far from the truth. You used to be alienated from God by your wicked works, but now he's reconciled you. He's brought you together with the Godhead through the sacrifice, through the penalty he bore on your behalf at Calvary. And it goes on to say, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight if, and that's where the thing seems to fall apart for some, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. So first of all, Paul made it really clear you have been reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Christ. Then he set forth God's desire and purpose for believers. And there are many passages of scripture we could bring to bear here, but for us to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now, again, standing before the judgment seat of Christ, there are those who will not be above reproach as far as their works are concerned. And that's what we're dealing with here. Uh, how, how have we lived? What have we done with the opportunity that was given to us? And uh, so it, it's important to know that he wants us to, to reach that state spiritually. Definitely. Presented if. If. We see similar language in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it 
with the washing of water by the word. Now, this is after you have been saved. Jesus taught his disciples, you know, if you've had a bath, you're clean, but you need to have your feet washed as you go through this world. And so there is a washing of water by the word. The spirit and the word working cleanse your life, cleanse your walk, change things for you, make you fit for close fellowship. And so the washing of water by the word. Now, you know, searching out the scriptures, letting God help you establish yourself in the truth of God's word as you listen to what his word says. That's the washing of the water, that he might present it to himself a glorious church. By the way, there was a a group in Chicago. I I read some of the writings from that group, and they talked about the church within the church. The the church just means an out-call group. That's what that word means. And there can be an out-call group, and there will be an out-call group from within what we see as the church as a whole. Not that God wants it just to be a small portion. God doesn't set up an exclusive situation. He sets up an inclusive situation, and people can choose to be included or exclude themselves. But his desire, with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now that's from the uh, Old King James Version. The New King James Version uses the words her and she to describe the church, the body of Christ. So here's Christ and she. Well, in various languages, Spanish, um, Greek, uh, well, I, I had a list of languages, but I don't remember them all. Anyway, some, some languages have gendered nouns, okay? Nobody is really sure why. La mesa, feminine, the table. El libro, masculine, the book. Why? Has nothing really to do with gender as we understand it in human terms. And so uh, when it says it, I think actually it's more accurate for the English language. But as you know, as I think many of you know, let's put it that way. Out of the body of Christ as a whole, the Lord will bring forth another entity just as it was with Adam of old. Christ is the last Adam. Grandfather Adam was the first Adam. And I'd refer you, I'm not going to go there, but 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 48 will tell you about the first Adam and the last Adam. And that group of believers brought out of the body of Christ those who have devoted themselves, I mean really devoted themselves to Christ, who have allowed him to cleanse them who've let the word wash over them again and again and fully prepare them to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. My father and I had a discussion um, where it says in the book of Revelation, he'll wipe away all tears from their eyes. And my father held that the new man, the new creation, the glorified body will not have tear ducts. I I really don't know about that. And uh, I maintain that there will be some genuine sorrow. How could you come before the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize then, maybe for the first time, what an opportunity I had. And I threw it away. How much he loves me, and yet I dishonored him. 
and I could go on down. There, there will be sorrow. There will be loss. And if you look around at the church as a whole, at ourselves, at other individuals, we know that not all believers will fit into that description of being holy, blameless, above reproach in his sight, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. This is a work that only God can do in us. I'll close with this passage, and it is mid-thought, and I'll pick it up next week. But in Ephesians 5.32, after a lengthy discussion of human marriage, we read, and This is a great mystery. He sets forth how the two will be one flesh. And he says, This is a great mystery, but I speak. I'm not really talking about human marriage. That's just the symbolism here, the illustration I'm actually talking about, I'm actually speaking concerning Christ and the church. There is going to be a relationship. There's a mystery involved in that relationship. But there's going to be a relationship that is permanently established between Christ and those who prepare themselves for that relationship. And that's the presentation for which we're preparing uh, the if is if we're going to prepare ourselves, then we have a part in that wondrous presentation to Christ of a people who love him and who have shown it by their lives. And I have to stop right there. <laughs>